Hello and welcome to the Anishinaabe History Podcast. I'm Chris Wheat. Today we're going back to the year 1850. In this year, two large land cession treaties were signed on the north shores of Lakes Superior and Huron. South of the Great Lakes, the Americans signed the Compromise of 1850. 1850 was also the time of the West Coast Gold Rush. Nathaniel Hawthorne's story, The Scarlet Letter, was also published in 1850. American Express was formed by two men named Wells and Fargo. Millard Fillmore was sworn in as the 13th President of the United States. Twenty years had passed since the beginning since the official beginning of the Trail of Tears, and the American Civil War had not yet begun. America was on the rise. Canada was not yet an official country, but it existed in primordial form as a British colony composed of provinces. However, the so-called international border between Canada and America was already being enforced by militaries and governments on both sides. First Nations territories were divided up and huge portions of land were sold or otherwise traded away. The Anishinaabe people of the Great Lakes were on the northern frontier, so to speak, of western expansion. In the year 1850, there were very few Euro-Canadian and Euro-American people north of the Great Lakes, but there were many thousands of Anishinaabe people. Up and down the shorelines of lakes and rivers across Turtle Island there were indigenous people. The same has been true for the Great Lakes and Hudson Bay watersheds for hundreds and hundreds of years. Thousands. But in the 1800s there was a power shift on Turtle Island from First Nations people to European governments. That's why English, French, and Spanish are the official languages of Canada and the United States, that is, North America. Hundreds of languages used to be spoken across Turtle Island. Now English is the dominant language. Why? Treaties like the Robinson 1850 treaties are part of the picture. How? by legitimating mining and settler expansion into pristine wilderness. Why was this a problem? Because the crown on the one hand understood the treaties in one way, and the chiefs on the other hand understood the treaties another way. Part of the problem was communication problems. For example, translating complex ideas from language to language. Another problem was participation. For example, Not all chiefs were present at the signings. Another problem was wording. Although similar to communication problems, this is different. This is because there have been concerns, almost since the outset of the treaty implementation themselves, about the wording of the treaties. Many chiefs and witnesses have attested to the observation of terms of discussion that were agreed to that were not in the final document. Another problem was the lack of negotiations. Although general discussions had been held in years previous by various chiefs and various representatives of the crown, Robinson held no power for real bargaining. The chiefs were presented with a take-it-or-leave-it deal. 
implied threats of possible American expansion urged at least some of the chiefs to sign the treaty. The chiefs wanted to be good allies to the crown, but they didn't want to get ripped off. The chiefs wanted land and fisheries, and there were chiefs, like Shingwakonts and Nebenagoching, who had the foresight to see mining as the way forward for their people in the generations to come. They addressed the crown in Montreal during a visit in the following way. Quote, the great spirit, said the chiefs, had originally stocked their lands with animals for clothing and food, but now these were gone. However, the great spirit had foreseen that this would happen, and placed these mines in our lands, so that the coming generations of his red children might find thereby the means of sustenance. End quote. And yet what the Anishinaabe people actually received were Indian reservations and Indian residential schools. What happened? How did that come to be? And how has that led to today's lived reality for many native people on Turtle Island? Let's look more deeply at the treaty, especially the treaty process and how that led to the terms of the agreement. From there, we can look at how the terms of the agreement have been used by the Crown to displace, disrupt, and destroy Indigenous nations and people around the Great Lakes. Soon after the treaty was signed, most of the chiefs and headmen made formal complaints to the Crown. The complaints outlined infractions committed by settlers. Infractions included timber harvesting, fishing rights, mining claims, annuity payments, territory boundaries, treaty arrears, hunting rights, and much needed clarifications of treaty terms. But by then it was too late. The Huron and Superior Treaties had already been signed. What the chiefs understood, based upon what they were promised by Mr. Robinson, and what has been written down as the treaty, are obviously two very different things. The problem is that the treaty is written in English, and whatever the chiefs thought they agreed to cannot be verified except through oral tradition. Thankfully, oral tradition is allowable in court. For example, the Bear Island case. In the Bear Island case, a land claim that got buried in the bureaucracy of the crown the court affirmed that, quote, Indian oral history is admissible in Aboriginal land claim cases where their history was never recorded in writing. However, this does not detract from the basic principle that the court should always be given the best evidence. Oral history may be contradicted by available factual records, end quote. It sounds reasonable, and yet for 200 years various First Nations have been in the court system in some capacity trying to correct some of the swindles and outright thefts of land that have occurred across Canada and indeed Turtle Island. There have been many illegal, immoral and unjust land grabs committed by settlers against indigenous populations across Turtle Island. This is a fact. It is an indisputable fact. And yet many people still dispute this basic fact. This is why we say the land was stolen and why we say we want our land back. It is because the treaties signed by the Crown, by the Canadian and American governments, have been broken many times, over and over, 
by those very same governments. Generation after generation of politicians, school teachers, and religious leaders have committed the same mistakes as their predecessors because none of this history is adequately taught in schools at any level or at any useful depth. Nor do many people feel inclined to learn the truth. What is the truth? The truth is that Canada and the United States of America, as well as Mexico and Central and South America, are all stolen land. That is a basic premise. From that basic premise, many of the following statistics and dates of legislation will hopefully begin to make sense as to why Indigenous communities generally have such shitty statistics. How does stolen land equate to drunks passing out on the street? I'm glad you asked. Now let me explain. Prior to treaty signings, native people lived. There was no welfare or booze. There was no authority paid to police specific segments of the population. But don't get fooled into thinking that there was no society, no order, no justice, or no civilization. Civilizations existed upon Turtle Island for thousands of years before Christopher Columbus showed up looking for fame, gold, slaves, and supposedly a passage to India. By the mid-1500s, the Spaniards devastated South and Central America. The Spaniards burned books and looted gold. That's why we don't have much knowledge about these civilizations today. By the 16 and 1700s, the British, French, and Dutch were making headway from the eastern shores of North America towards the interior. Around this time is when the so-called French and Indian Wars began. Britain and France fought against each other for hundreds of years, and the Dutch liked to sell weapons. The transatlantic slave trade existed for a few hundred years around this time. It was only in the mid to late 1800s that slavery was slowly outlawed by the so-called civilized nations of the time. Canada, being a British colony, shut down its use of slaves decades before their American neighbors. After the War of 1812, the Americans had become powerful, as did British authority in the North. During the War of 1812, many native people fought for the various European empires who wanted to dominate the planet. Around this time, there was a power shift from native people to the settlers. By 1830, an American law forced native people to be moved west of the Mississippi on the aptly named Trail of Tears. The Indian Removal Act of 1830 was obviously racist legislation created to force the indigenous population out of the way of the coastal expansion of white Americans. In 1837, a treaty was signed with the Chippewa who lived at the confluence of the Mississippi and St. Peter's rivers. It was a land surrender treaty with the Chippewa there receiving payments for their land as well as money for blacksmiths and farmers to be available to the Chippewa. In 1837 and 1838, Upper and Lower Canada became embroiled in two separate rebellions. The rebellions led to the Legislative Act of Union, which in 1841 created the singular 
province of Canada, out of Upper and Lower Canada. In 1839, Upper Canada issued a statute called Protection of the Lands of the Crown in this province from Trespass and Injury. The statute began in the following way, quote, Whereas the lands appropriated for the residence of certain Indian tribes in this province, as well as the unsurveyed lands, and lands of the crown ungranted and not under location, or sold or held by virtue of any lease or license of occupation, have from time to time been taken possession of by persons having no lawful right or authority so to do, and whereas the said lands have also been from time to time unlawfully entered upon, and the timber, trees, stone and soil removed therefrom, and other injuries have been committed thereon, and whereas it is necessary to provide by law for the summary removal of persons unlawfully occupying the said lands, as also to protect the same from future trespass and injury, be it therefore enacted by the Queen's Most Excellent Majesty, by and with the advice and consent of the Legislative Council and Assembly of the Province of Upper Canada, constituted and assembled by virtue of and under the authority of an Act passed by the Parliament of Great Britain, entitled, An Act to Repeal Certain Parts of an Act Passed in the Fourteenth Year of His Majesty's Reign, entitled, An Act for Making More Effectual Provision for the Government of the Province of Quebec in North America, and to make further provision for the government of the said province, and by the authority of the same, that it shall and may be lawful for the lieutenant governor of the province from time to time, as he shall deem necessary, to appoint two or more commissioners under the great seal of this province, to receive information, and to inquire into any complaint that may be made to them, or any one of them, against any person for illegally possessing himself of any of the aforesaid lands, for the cession of which to Her Majesty no agreement hath been made with the tribes occupying the same, and who may claim title thereto, and also to inquire into any complaint that may be made to them, or any one of them, against any person for having unlawfully cut down or removed any timber, trees, stone or soil on such lands, or for having done any other willful or unlawful injury thereon. End quote. It should be noted that the persons having no lawful right would be white settlers looking to get rich from timber extraction and mining. What the crown at the time didn't like was not having a cut of the wealth, especially from land that was supposedly surrendered to it. Trespassers in this regard were people without proper licenses to harvest timber or subsurface resources. It should be remembered that native people were guaranteed the right to harvest necessary resources within their treaty territory. Harvesting and land use would be at the forefront of Aboriginal issues for generations to come. In the 1840s, mining exploration increased on the shores of Lake Superior. By 1849, the Micah Bay incident happened. It was partly the result of settlers mining an area that belonged to the Anishinaabe people. 
This incident is one reason why Robinson was sent to the Sault Ste. Marie area to sign a treaty in the first place. In 1850, the Robinson Superior and Robinson Huron treaties were signed. Some of the chiefs who signed the treaty had fought for the British during the War of 1812 and considered the king as an ally. In 1853, on the northern side of the Medicine Line, the following legislation was enacted. It was titled, An Act to Make Better Provision for the Administration of Justice in the Unorganized Tracts of Country of Upper Canada. In 1854, more treaties were signed with the Anishinaabe people. One was on the American side of the Medicine Line, at Fond du Lac, in what is now Minnesota. Also happening this year were the Saugeen Surrenders, which are sometimes considered as part of the Robinson Treaties, although they weren't signed by Robinson. In 1857, on the northern side of the Medicine Line, Canada enacted the Fishing Act, followed up a year later by the Fishery Act. Although some argue that the Fishing Act protects the fish and the environment, others argue that the Act was put in place to disrupt First Nations fishing economies. Also in 1857, the Act to Encourage the Gradual Civilization of the Indian Tribes in this province was legislated. The province, of course, was Canada. In 1858, Minnesota officially became a state of the United States of America. Henry Sibley married into a powerful Dakota family, placing himself at the bargaining table. The marriage was a sham. 1859 was the year that the Penafather Treaty was signed. What was the Penafather Treaty? It was a treaty signed by a group of Ojibwe people at Batchewana First Nation. Mr. Penafather, whom the treaty is named after, was a representative of the Crown. This treaty has been disputed for quite a long time, as conditions that had been set out in the treaty have not been met by the Crown. The confusion of this particular treaty has had implications into the 21st century. In 2017, members of the Batchewana First Nation won a court case against the Crown. Quote, In R. V. Sayers, three members of the Batchewana First Nation were charged with logging on Crown land without the authority of a forest resource license, contrary to the Crown Forest Sustainability Act, while the chief of the band, Dean Sayers, was charged with being a party to the logging. The defendants in this case maintained that the logging was within their established treaty rights under the terms of the Robinson Treaty of 1850. Quote. Canada has a history of illegally arresting native people for merely harvesting materiel that was promised to us in the treaties. It has happened a lot. In 1860, the so-called Dakota War began. Henry Sibley was a key person whose involvement influenced the outbreak of the war. This was also the year of the beginning of the American Civil War. In 1862, there was a treaty signed for Manitoulin Island. In 1865, the American Civil War ended. In 1867, the British North America Act was enacted, thereby creating Canada. In the 1870s, the Americans went to war against the buffalo herds that once migrated across the Great Plains of Turtle Island. 
I've talked about this campaign of destruction in an episode entitled Extirpation of the Buffalo. Essentially, the buffalo were massacred by the military and by so-called sportsmen so that the crucial element of Plains Indian survival, the buffalo, would be gone. Then, without that crucial element of culture, the people could be divided and conquered. This is important to know, because many treaties were signed after the American Civil War and after the purposeful destruction of the millions of buffaloes that once lived on Turtle Island. In 1871, Sir John A. Macdonald promised voters and money providers that he could get a railroad built all the way across Canada. He would get it built whether or not it was on First Nations land. As a Prime Minister, Macdonald broke treaty promises. Ironically, the treaty signing process would continue in Canada for many more decades. In 1873, Treaty No. 3 was signed at Kenora, Ontario. In 1876, the Indian Act was enacted, further stripping Native people of autonomy and also further attacking the various First Nation cultures across Canada all at once. 1876 was also the year that Treaty No. 6 was signed. In 1885, Louis Riel was hanged. He was a proponent of a Métis nation. Although his dream of an independent Métis nation was not fully realized, he is now nonetheless considered as one of the founding fathers of Manitoba. Soldiers were sent from Ottawa to suppress the rebellion. The Dawson Trail between Thunder Bay and Winnipeg was surveyed by the Government of Canada around this time. Many of the soldiers sent to suppress the rebellion stayed in the area to live after the rebellion was quelled. In 1899, the Boer War began. Aboriginal people from Canada participated in this war, which took place in South Africa. That war would end in 1902. In 1905, Treaty No. 9 was signed. In 1907, Dr. Bryce published his report condemning the terrible living conditions at residential schools in Manitoba and what was then the Northwest Territories. In 1909, Canada and America signed the International Boundary Waters Treaty. Although this treaty went through Anishinaabe territory, no Anishinaabe chiefs or nations were signatories to it. Between 1914 and 1918 was World War I, and many Anishinaabe people were enlisted. Many Anishinaabe people fought for Canada under Britain all over France. One famous native guy was Francis Pegamagagabo. He was a sniper. And yet, in 1920, the Canadian government made it mandatory by law for native children to attend residential schools. Since their inception, until the late 20th century, children were forcibly removed from their home communities and ordered by the government to attend these torture camps. They were not schools like people today would think of schools. The residential schools were a cover for severe abuse and brainwashing. Throughout much of the 20th century, these brainwashing torture camps were in operation across Turtle Island. Hundreds and hundreds of these schools were specifically implemented to destroy children. And it went on for a hundred years. This is when the real damage began to take place. 
It wouldn't be for another 50 years in 1970 for Native organizations in Canada to once again legally begin to control some of the education processes of Indian reservations across the country. But for the majority of the 20th century, Canada and the United States of America were in the business of abusing Native children. Not just abusing them, but torturing and experimenting on them, destroying them. This went on for multiple generations. In other words, the American and Canadian government spent a solid century attacking the family unit of Indigenous peoples. There were hundreds and hundreds of these schools. These weren't places where sometimes bad things happened. The schools were there to commit evil acts in order to destroy Indian children. The schools were brainwashing camps. That's why so many people who survived these schools came out of them really fucked up. These schools existed for over a hundred years and the last one closed in 1996. That means that my mom's entire generation went to a residential school. My mom, her siblings, my mother-in-law, her siblings, they were all forced to attend these horrible places. The people from their communities were forced to attend or forced to have their children attend these horrible places. Although my family is from Treaty 9 area, the effects of signing that treaty were virtually the same as the effects of the signing of the Robinson Superior and Huron Treaties of 1850. They had signed their lives and the lives of their children away to the so-called protection of the crown. If those chiefs knew what was going to happen over the next 150 years, I don't think they would have signed anything. As an aside, I should note that adhesions to Treaty 9 were made in 1930, which was 20 years after Dr. Price indicated that residential schools were hellhole death traps. By signing on to treaty adhesions, the people of Treaty 9 condemned their children to the Canadian educational system at the time, which was the already devastating residential school system. Now think about this. My mom went to one of these schools, and she didn't have a good time there. She was born in the early 1950s, the intergenerational trauma refers to the fucked up shit people like me have had to deal with by simply being born to and then living with a person who was forced to attend a Canadian Indian residential school. I'll be nice and simply say this. It hasn't been easy. The bottom line is this. The children from all these treaty areas, from all these treaty areas, were kidnapped from their families and thrown into brainwashing camps. It was done to destroy native cultures, not to educate children. If education was the motive, why did so many children have such poor academic records? The answer is because the so-called teachers were unqualified and were savagely abusive. And it wasn't just teachers, it was nuns and other employees working at these schools who for years and generations had their way with children. This went on for multiple generations and only shut down within my lifetime. These were not places of some distant past. It is recent history. My family has suffered because of this. I have suffered because of this. That's why there's so many of us still fucked up. The collective governments and agencies of the government have spent centuries and billions of dollars trying to fuck us up. The schools may have officially closed a few decades ago, 
but the colonization continues. For instance, I haven't even talked about the purposeful, illegal, and immoral flooding of Indian reservations. Nor have I talked about the purposeful, illegal, and immoral lack of education funding across Indian reservations, even though paying for education is specifically addressed in the Indian Act. I haven't even talked about the purposeful, illegal, and immoral land appropriations done by various governments over the years. Here specifically I'm talking about the golf course on stolen land that led to the police shooting of Dudley George, an unarmed protester. Nor have I talked about the purposeful, illegal, and immoral imprisonment of many native hunters and fishers who have been arrested and jailed for merely gathering food for their families as their ancestors had done since time immemorial. What I am talking about is the breaking of the treaties by Canada and the United States of America. Let me put it this way. Indians are poor because their land and culture was forcibly removed and for generations Indian people have been purposefully, illegally and immorally abused by various authorities, governments and people. Unfortunately, for some people, the brainwashing has taken over almost completely and virtually none of this has been learned, taught or understood. I'd like to finish this episode talking about intergenerational trauma. We're going to get into some Freudian shit, so be prepared. In 1899, Sigmund Freud published his book, The Interpretation of Dreams. In 1913, he published another work titled, Totem and Taboo. Actually, the full title of the book is, Totem and Taboo, Some Points of Agreement Between the Mental Lives of Savages and Neurotics. I have a feeling that he's talking about me. Freud's book has four chapters. They are Chapter 1, The Horror of Incest. Chapter 2, Taboo and Emotional Ambivalence. Chapter 3, Animism, Magic and the Omnipotence of Thoughts. Chapter 4, The Return of Totemism in Childhood. It's not a long book. It's less than 200 pages. Each chapter is an essay on a topic. So what does Freud have to say about incest, totems, and savages? I'll begin by discussing his understanding of the word totem. To Freud, who borrowed from the anthropology of the time, the totem was the symbolic representation of a mystical patron-clan animal. He relates totems to taboos. A taboo is defined as a forbidden act considered so offensive to norms, particularly Moore's moral norms, as to be reviled and unthinkable. Freud described totemism in the following way, quote, Totemism, on the contrary, is something alien to our contemporary feelings, a religio-social institution which has been long abandoned as an actuality and replaced by newer forms. It has left only the slightest traces behind it in the religions, manners, and customs of the civilized peoples of today, and it has been subject to far-reaching modifications even among the races over which it still holds sway. The social and technical advances in human history have affected taboos far less than the totem. End quote. 
what was he actually talking about? Freud begins his first essay by giving a very racist account of the Aborigines of Australia. After describing how primitive and savage these so-called cannibals, a term he uses without evidence, he makes an interesting statement about incest. He says, quote, We should certainly not expect that the sexual life of these poor naked cannibals would be moral in our sense or that their sexual instincts would be subjected to any great degree of restriction. Yet we find that they set before themselves with the most scrupulous care and the most painful severity the aim of avoiding incestuous sexual relations. Indeed, their whole social organization seems to serve that purpose or to have been brought into relation with its attainment. End quote. Why was this important to say? Why would he say this? What is incest? Incest is sexual relations between family members. Freud was talking about incest in terms of a taboo related to totems, that is, animistic and religious clans, in a matter of speaking. Freud was talking about the horror of incest in terms of exogenous relationships with so-called primitive societies. An exogenous relationship is one that exists between two people from separate kin groups. Exogamy, which is the practice of marrying from separate kin groups, exists to prevent incest. Mammals that breed within a small gene pool will, after some generations of close interbreeding, exhibit abnormalities. Generally, humans want to avoid abnormalities in their offspring. Freud talked about how the avoidance of incest became attached to the non-familial, but nonetheless important, religious totem system. This is because in totemic systems, all around the world according to Freud, members of the same clan, whether or not actually blood-related, are nonetheless considered to be siblings. Freud stated that this clan taboo perhaps originated in early humans as an antidote to what he called group incest. This group incest would have been more likely, so Freud says, within an extended family group, that is, a clan. So over time, the family group taboo became a clan totem taboo. Now let me explain what this means to me as a modern-day neurotic savage. For example, I am a member of the Loon clan. In the Anishinaabe language, this is said, Mang Dodem. The Anishinaabe word Dodem is where the English word totem comes from. In our folklore, our way of seeing the world, the Loon clan people are the faith keepers. To me, this means knowing the Seven Grandfather teachings, the Four Directions teachings, the Four Hills teachings, and other stuff like that, and living this path in real time. The residential school system was a concerted effort to break the continuity of traditional knowledge within our culture. Residential schools were not nice places. There were frequent and vicious beatings of children by adults over natural childhood tendencies like farting and giggling. Not only did these actions happen to individual students for their many years in any given school, but sometimes, perhaps oftentimes, these vicious actions were conducted to multiple generations of individuals within the same family. For instance, in his book, Augie Morasti describes a nun who seduced not only himself while he was at residential school, 
but also his uncle while he was at the same school years earlier. Is there really any question why some of us are still so fucked up? Residential schools are why many native people are neurotic. Totems don't just create taboos. Totems actually help keep us sane. Freud makes the mistake in his book by stating that totem families or clans have replaced real blood relationships. This is not true. When I discovered I was a member of the Loon Totem, I didn't replace my birth family. I simply added to it a spiritual family. That's all for today's episode. Stay tuned for more episodes in the future. I'm Chris Waite, and this has been the Anishinaabe History Podcast.